verses 16 through the end of the chapter. And God's word says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit's help in preaching the word. We pray for your Holy Spirit's help in receiving the word. We pray for you to do a work in us. Uh, Of course, we need our minds to be engaged, so help us to understand. But more than that, we need our hearts, our souls, our beings, our spiritual lives to be affected. And we know that that's something that only you can do. So help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit during this precious time as you've already been with us and helped us as we've worshipped you, as you will be with us through the rest of the service. We pray for this time in the word together. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So here's Paul picking up the story where he has departed uh, in a rush. They took him to Athens to escape from the wrath of the people that were after him. He's there by himself. We saw right before this, it says they, uh, they can, who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And he was waiting for them at Athens. And he was in this big city, this famous city, this city that he had heard about. The big cities of that day uh, would have been Rome and and Athens uh, primarily, and then there would have been others. It was what we would call a world-class city, an impacting city. Uh, And he was there by himself. Didn't have the conversations that he could have of bouncing it off. What do you think we shall go see today? Where's the tour guide? Uh, What do you think is the best? Uh, He was there in this place he heard about. What would he do? How would it go for him in Athens in the big city for the first time all by himself? People describe what it's like to visit. I'd like to talk sometime. I was thinking about this and we didn't have time this morning. I'd like to talk to Anna about what it would have been like to come from, from Taiwan to Michigan and just to see it. And what's it like the first time somebody sees New York City from somewhere else in the world? Uh, my brother has a funny story about being from, uh, he, he was just a, you know, he was an Iowa guy like, like, like the rest of us. And I would say words to insult myself. He was a Claude Hopper. He was a country boy. He was a hillbilly. He was one of us, us Iowa farm types. Um, and he had these impressions in his mind of what New York City would be. And all of his impressions were from Spider-Man comic books. Because when he was in fourth grade, I got him a subscription for Christmas one year to The Amazing Spider-Man. And then he went on to collect all the big brothers when they got rid of him. And he has them all in sleeves in a climate-controlled environment. And that's going to be his retirement one day. But he was in college, finally, in Tennessee. And they took a group up to New York City. And he said as he was walking around New York City... And they were describing the places. He's like, oh, that's where Spider-Man had that big fight with Dr. Octopus. Oh, that's where the Green Goblin killed Gwen Stacy. Oh, that's where. And he said, that's his impressions in the big city. I've got a friend that's on his way from Holland, Michigan to visit me now, an old college friend that uh, I've known for 40 years. And he's going to go on after he spends a couple days with us on up to Boston. I said, we're closer to New York City. You could go down and get mugged down there instead of in Boston. And he said, no, I've been to New York City, and I haven't been mugged, and I don't want to be back. And check that one off my list, but he wants to go to Boston and see some things because he's never been there. He grew up in Pensacola, Florida, and he lived his adult life in Michigan, and he wants to see Boston. I said, well, let me tell you, before you go, I said, Faneuil Hall, that, that was a lot for me to see where Daniel Webster and all those guys spoke. But I said, my... My brother was just up there, and, and, and some of the tours these days, I said, you've got to get your history down because uh, they don't exist to tell you the history anymore. They exist to interpret the history in, in their light. So uh, he said, I don't really, he said, I'm not as interested in that. He's a marathoner, and he says, I want to pull a Rosie Ruiz, and I want to take that last half mile of the Boston Marathon and, and just walk that where I've watched all those things and, and jump in and, and do that. And he's got his ideas of the big city. What would Paul have thought Paul has some time. He's without his entourage. 
he's there almost by accident, except he trusts in God to have been the one to have brought him there. And he wants to see these places. And he walks through the city. What did Paul see? Got four points to the sermon this morning. Uh, when I get to the text, it's like sitting down with old friends. There's five or six, five or six people from the past that I talk with and look at. And, and I didn't look at, at Calvin first this time. I, I, I relied on, on, on John Stott. And these are his divisions. He told us in seminary, it's okay to borrow. In fact, you should borrow. Don't try to come up with something brand new every time. But when you borrow, give credit where credit's due. And I thought Stott did the best job of dividing this uh, uh, for our congregation, for our sermon this morning. So this morning we look at what did Paul see? What did Paul feel? What did Paul do? And what did Paul say? So here's Paul in the city. Here's a different uh, commentator who wrote this. Uh, we need this, uh, need this quote to help us out. Somebody wrote this. Uh, they, they, they wrote a sermon based on this, and, and their title of their sermon was Paul versus Athens. That, that's catchy, Paul versus Athens, duking it out with Athens intellectually, and it was something. But in that sermon, they wrote this paragraph <clears throat> about this situation as they set the scene. Even though the Romans conquered Athens in 146 B.C., Athens retained her supremacy because the Romans loved everything Greek and so did not change her status as a free city. Despite all her glory, Athens was empty because she was living on the memories of the past. In philosophy, she simply repeated the echoes of men long gone. Her art was no longer innate, overflowing, but a lingering reflex. It was to such a city that the apostle came. Proud, glorious to the eye, but dead. It was to such a city that the apostle came. It was a proud city. It was glorious to the eye, and it was dead. And then this writer said, what a contrast between the apostle and the metropolis. What a contrast between the apostle who had been dead who was now alive and living. And he's walking around. What did he see? Point number one. What did he see? Verse 16. He saw a city that was full of idols. He walked around to see the sights, and what he saw was an idol here, an idol there, uh, worshiping this God here, worshiping that God there. Idols everywhere. So complicated that they even, in case they missed an idol, they had an idol to the unknown God. And he saw these idols. Paul, the Old Testament Hebrew scholar, I bet he thought about Isaiah chapter 2, where God looked down and saw God's own people obsessed and consumed by idols. Isaiah 2, we'll spend a little time there. Isaiah 2, verses 6 through 8. God, through his prophet Isaiah, is indicting his own people. He said, for you've rejected uh, God. God, you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. And it was full of idols, as Athens was full of idols, 
as our world today is full of idols. Now, Athens weren't God's people, strictly speaking. But some of them would become God's people. And that's the beauty of the passage. But there were idols where everyone had something to worship. It's not unlike our day to day. Whether you've got five channels or 50 channels or 500 channels, take a look through and count the idols. Count the ways that we have of of, of worshiping. The things that are there for us to look at and, and worship that are not God. To put our trust in. Things to purchase that will make your life complete. The escape into a new religion of politics where government replaces God and government's your provider. Government will look after you. Sell out to your government and your government will take you from womb to tomb. Well, maybe not from womb, but from birth to tomb. And we have an idol of government. We have an idol of things. Idols of economy, a job, a sugar daddy. The money you think is going to be left to you when someone, uh, if they would hurry up and get it over with and just die, so you could have that money. Idols that we have. Things we look at to provide for our security, for our well-being. Peace of mind, a significant other. If only I could marry the right person this time, or if only this person would do this, and then I would be set. And our idols are as abundant as the idols in Athens. Our potential idols, I should say. Our potential idols. Uh, Pick one, you could find one, and people go from thing to thing. What was interesting is that people who worship idols, false idols, not God, they're pretty good. If you want to find out the falseness of other idols, just look at people who are worshiping other false idols as they criticize and point out the fallacies in somebody else's idol. All worshiping false ones. And I just... In my brain, the song by Billy Bragg came to my mind. I just pulled it up and listened to it and sent it to my son because I thought he'd be interested in it. A little punk rocker from England, Billy Bragg, had a song. He introduced it. He says, this is a song about glossy fashion magazines. And you think about this island that this guy is pointing out about, about this group. The busy girl buys beauty. The pretty girl buys style. And the simple girl buys what she's told to buy. And she sees her world through the brightly lit eyes of the glossy romance of fashion. And he's talking about glossy fashion magazines. You get this, you buy this, you do that. And he says, and what happens in the bridge to his song? He says, what was Anna Ford wearing? What did Angela Rippon say? What will you do when you wake up one morning to find that God's made you plain in a beautiful person's world? And all those quick recipes have let you down. And you're 20 and a half and not yet engaged. You go look for the boy who says, I love you, let's get married and have kids. And he's pointing out, once this fashion fades, this one, this one, we look for this God, this God, this God, this God, and we bounce around. And he ends up talking about the daily drill for beautiful hair in a mail-order paradise. And he's calling to account this look at beauty and this thing that we have in our appearance. And thankfully, a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, beauty is only skin deep. Beauty is not everything. But sad to say, they find it in a different idol and not the true God so many times. Then there's the classic Mick Jagger saying, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be and just the the pressure to, to buy, to buy, to buy, 
He says, well, he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. He's, uh, he's talking, and he's talking about materialism. But what do we, when we finally see through the materialism, what do we replace it with? If it's not God, it's something, and it's not something good. It's something just as idolatrous. What am I tempted to do? I'm tempted to make the celebrities who point out the other things my idols and people worship. We've got so many Christian celebrities. Find your identity in the sermons of such and such. Get your routine. If so and so says it. And I've quoted these preachers sometimes, even alleged good ones, as the 67th book of the Bible. And we fall down and we worship technique for building churches, things like that. Paul saw what we can see when we're not numb to it. He saw a world full of idols. He saw God being shortchanged, God being snubbed, people turning their back on God to worship and hope for their security in something false that they proclaim to be an idol. That's what Paul saw, according to Scripture. What did Paul feel when he saw this, when he was aware of all the false idols? Well, the continuation of Isaiah chapter 2, he felt what God describes himself as feeling. Isaiah 2, 8 through 11. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Isaiah 2.18, and the idols shall utterly pass away. Isaiah 2.20-22, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, Enter into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Ends up the chapter saying this, and this is good advice for every one of us to revisit, not just to say, oh, I did that once. This is every day. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Don't worship people. Don't worship what people make. Don't worship what people say. Worship the true and living God. That's what he's seeing. And Paul sees it. What does he feel? Well, the Bible says, and it's a Greek word transliterated, paroxino, paroxino, from which we get the word paroxysm, they said. And you guys might be smart and know what paroxysm is, but I had to look it up (laughs) just to make sure I knew what it meant. Um, So for those of you like me, a sudden and powerful expression of strong feeling, especially one that you cannot control. ESV got it right. His spirit was provoked within him. He was provoked. He saw the idols and, and something happened in his spirit. It was a gut reaction. It was a knee-jerk reaction. It's, it's what you feel as soon as you see something utterly revolting and you just feel it. And Paul, in his relationship with God, talking to God because he didn't have... Silas and Timothy there, so he was probably talking to God more than he ever had in a long time. And he's walking with God down the street, seeing the idols. And he said, this is terrible. 
This is revolting. This is disgusting. This is wrong. The only other place in the New Testament this word is used is in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, what we know as the love chapter. And it says, love does not insist on its own way. It is not, and here's the word translated, irritable or resentful. Irritable. So Paul, uh, love is not irritable. Why are we all looking at each other? <laughs> okay. Love is not irritable. Okay, Maybe we'll stop and we'll preach a sermon on that next week. <laughs> I need a little bit of the love chapter. I even said, I wrote it down in words. I said this, and I'll I'll jump ahead two points. I said, if I'm loving Paul the way the Bible says to love her, I'm not going to be easily provoked to anger by her. But if I'm loving God the way the Bible says to love God, I am going to be provoked in my spirit when people place their trust, their adoration, and their rest in any of our idols. Provoked. Irritated. This word might only occur twice in the New Testament, but there's this thing called the Septuagint. Ever heard of that? You might be familiar with that. Uh, The Old Testament we know was written in Hebrew, but a lot of people were losing their Hebrew, just like we don't know biblical Hebrew. We don't know biblical Greek, really. And and so there's a good translation. And you can find many, many great translations in Scripture uh, from the Greek and the Hebrew. Well, the Jewish people uh, had what they called the Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint meaning 70 the, the tradition was this, uh, 70 rabbis translated the Old Testament in 70 days or something like that. That we don't know and can't prove. It was called that. And it was a good authorized translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. Jesus and Paul both, when they quoted the Old Testament, quoted from this because it was the language of the people. So, so we're not saying it was inspired, but we're saying it's a good solid translation. That word that we get the word paroxysm from occurs many times in that, in the Old Testament. It says God himself is provoked frequently. God was provoked to anger when the Israelites made the golden calf, for instance. That's the word they used. Again, in Isaiah 62, Deuteronomy 9, several places, Psalm 106, Hosea 8. Um, There is a provoking and a a hardness, a a gut reaction that is felt when people dishonor God and worship other idols than the one true God. Provoking. So our son, he was, what, about eight years behind his two older sisters, his youngest of his older sisters. He didn't walk. He, He walked like so late. He was 14 months or so. He got carried everywhere. You know, he was... And he talked fast, though. He learned to talk fast and not only talk, but use big words even if he couldn't pronounce them, before he could pronounce them. And so one sister particularly would kind of tease him and have fun with him and all that. And he would sit there at the table and he'd go, kick-evoking me, kick-evoking me. And we said, what's he saying? He's saying, quit provoking me. Don't provoke me. Uh, Provoked. Uh, Somebody does something and it causes an irritation. And Paul was provoked. That's what he felt when he saw this in his spirit, and it was a righteous indignation. I'll read this again, what I had written. If I'm loving Paul the way the Bible says to love her, I'm not going to be easily provoked to her. If I'm loving God the way the Bible says to love him, 
I'm going to be provoked in my spirit when people place their trust, their adoration, their rest in any of our idols. We can't worship that silver-tongued orator or that person who can move me with her music. Somebody writes good music for her, she gets a writing credit, she sings, and then she tells me how I'm supposed to vote. What? I can't be worshiping people who can act well or write well or throw a ball well or can gather people together in some pseudo-church well. It's terrible what we do. And these lesser gods that are bowed down to and that we're even tempted to bow down to ourselves. God, help us. Think of, in the Old Testament, the honorable Mordecai in the book of Esther. He wasn't dazzled by power, and so he would not bow down to wicked, powerful Haman, who had the earthly power to make him or break him. Because Mordecai realized there was a higher power. There is a higher power. The highest, most powerful being. The one who's separate from all else. And when that loving God is disparaged, then of course Christians will be provoked in their spirit when they see it. Because there's a Holy Spirit that dwells within you, that affects your spirit as a Christian. It's important for us to see that Paul's chief emotion here was not sadness. I'm sure sadness was mixed in. Sadness that people didn't know God, but it wasn't sadness. It was, it was a, a, a righteous indignation. It wasn't despair, like this world is lost. What kind of a mission am I on? Fool's errand trying to share the gospel with these people wasn't that. It wasn't aimed in sympathy at the idolaters. Oh, I feel so sad for them. I picture them in hell. It wasn't that, although that is a good emotion for us to have, but we can't run on that. His was the highest possible. He saw holy God, and he saw true God, and he saw God being disparaged. If you could go back in time and go to the time of the crucifixion and you're standing there as a Christian who knows what that was going on there and somebody walks up to Jesus and spits in his face, what are you going to feel as a believer? That's what Paul was feeling, that kind of emotion. It's for the glory of the God who saved him for the glory, stolen glory of the God who had given him so much. The only, trying to come up with a human parallel to this righteous indignation, one human one that came to me, and maybe it's not the best, it was the best I could do this week as I thought about it, is the whole idea of stolen valor. You serve in a war, say Vietnam, and your friends die there, or you have a dad who died there. Or you read even just like me, I read a book called, it was called Hue 1968, and it was about that town. And that author was so good, it brought me to tears to think about the beautiful Vietnamese people, uh, citizens just gunned down on the streets who are now just fertilizer for the beautiful trees and flowers you see if you go there. And you think of the loss of life and you think of the senselessness of it. And then you have somebody who puts on a uniform or tells lies and says they were there serving. And the indignation that some real Vietnam vets feel toward the stolen valor types 
is almost a righteous indignation. That's the gut reaction because of stolen valor. Only put that to God, stealing God's glory and how it made Paul feel. That's what he saw. That's what he felt. How did he act? What did he do? What Paul saw, what Paul felt, now what Paul did. He did not do this. He did not say, I'm going to kill them all. I hope they all go to hell for this forever. He didn't say that. Pre-Christian days, when he felt an emotion like that, he killed the Christians. God saved him and said, stop doing that. Paul went from a position of being one who would kill for his false version of God to being one who would die for the true God, even in spite of that. So the emotion didn't make him uh, want to smite the person. Places in the world where this is done to Christians who don't go along with the totalitarianism that's there in our world, the Christians don't do that when they're acting like Christians to others. The Bible tells us our weapons are not flesh and blood. So he didn't revert to his prior ways of killing those who were offensive to God. He did not just hole up in a room somewhere till Silas and Timothy joined up with them so they could get out of there, go to an easier mission field. He didn't do that. In other words, he didn't write the Athenians off as hopeless cases. He knew himself if there was ever such a thing as a hopeless case, it would have been him. So what did he do based on what he saw and what he felt? Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. He did what he'd always done, same motive, find some religious people who were semi-open at least to the idea of a holy scripture and go to them and talk to them about Jesus and see what happens. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So while he's there, and they had this marketplace of ideas, so they all sat around and just waited for something new to talk about. But what a life. <laughs> clickety, clickety, click. Watch, 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 watch. Something new, something new, something new. Um, and, and even the Epicureans and Stoics were opposites philosophically, but they were brother idolaters on their way to hell in real life. He did what he'd always done, what God told him to do. And he just went and talked about God to people. They were open to ideas. He received some criticism. This, to me, was the funniest part. It says some, he endured some verbal abuse. They called him a babbler. What verse is that? Okay, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And to look up the word babbler, they called him a babbler. Babbler, a seed picker, as a crow a sponger, a loafer, an empty talker, a person who gathers whatever substance happens to fall from the loads in the marketplace. Somebody who just gathers this little thing and does that. We would say he's like a bird that hops around outside a fast food restaurant, the outside picnic tables, and when people leave, they hop on over and eat that French fry that that three-year-old dropped on the ground, and they eat that part of a burger, and they shuffle through. They were calling him that a seed picker, a crow, a babbler. Or we would say a dumpster diver. And they said he was a dumpster diver when it comes to his philosophy because all he's talking about is this thing called Jesus and the resurrection. Some people, and there's a theory, and this is so interesting to me, some people think that they interpret him when it says he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about two separate gods, one named Jesus and one called 
uh, anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And they thought he was talking about a male god named Jesus and a, a female god named the resurrection. And they didn't even understand what he was saying. And they dragged him to Mars Hill. The Areopagus, Ares. And here we hear not just what Paul saw when he was a stranger, when he was that American in Paris, so to speak, when he was that guy visiting the New World and writing his, his uh, uh, impressions of it. But they dragged him to this place called the Areopagus, what we call Mars Hill. Every now and then you'll hear of a Christian ministry or two called Mars Hill, and, and what they want to convey with that is they're, they're the gather a place of ideas and where they reason with the world. And Mars Hill's taken, then they call themselves Rivendell. That's a good one to call yourself from, from Lord of the Rings. And I don't know what the other ones that didn't beat them to the draw and didn't copyright that name call themselves, but it's a, it's a place where people come and, and they gathered and they exchanged ideas. In the old days, it was a place where they had trials. Here, by this time, there was no trial in that day. They just wanted to hear him out. And he stands with all the people surrounding him to explain. What did he say? Here's your explanation. Here's what he said. He first made the observation that they were very religious. So he put on his Captain Obvious hat and said that. He didn't say that as a compliment or a criticism because, as we know, everybody's religious. People go, well, I'm not a theologian, but... No, everyone's a theologian. Everyone has a thought about God, an idea about God. And usually we're the seed pickers who just put it all together and, and have some philosophy where some's true and some's very wrong. It wasn't a compliment or a criticism when he observed that they were religious. I wrote in my notes, hell is full of people who were very religious. You can be a very, quote-unquote, spiritual person and spend eternity without God. And we know that there are other people who are not religious at all. And they can spend eternity without God too. We are what we are. We came out the way God wanted us to come out. And some of us uh, have a spiritual bent, but not necessarily a Christian bent. He let them know that he made an effort to understand their culture. He'd walked around and seen. He was talking from understanding the culture. I notice even you've got an altar to the unknown God. I'll just tell you who the unknown God is, he said. He found a way to get them thinking about Jesus, the unknown to them, God. And then with confidence, he told them about the unknown God. First thing he did, he proclaimed him as the one who made the world and everything in it. In his message at Mars Hill. He's the God who made everything. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He was criticizing their false constructs of God. He implied that God made everything, not only them, but the things that they used to construct the idols. Therefore, he said, God is not just another God deserving of a little statue somewhere that says to the unknown God, that God is the one God above all the others. He's the superior one. Everything else comes from him. There's God and there's everyone and everything else. God is holy. That's what it means. Set apart. He's the other. He's the separate one. God is holy and only God is. And then when he chooses to save us and make us holy and set us apart, even on this earth, 
uh, even our holy deeds, even our good deeds, whatever, are mixed with the, the taint of, of sin and, and, and humanness and worldliness. God is the only pure, holy being. And that's what Paul was saying. He's the boss of all people, whether or not they acknowledge him. He said there is a time coming when everyone will bow down to him. There's a time coming when he is going to judge the earth. Verse 31, because he has a fixed day. If it's true that this God is who he says he is, who's our very definition of God, and if it's true that he has a fixed day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, then he's telling them, be prepared, be aware. Dad used to say when we were helping him around the house, handing him tools and all that, stay alert and you won't get hurt. Uh, be, Be prepared, be ready. But then he says this, he's not distant, but he's within reach. He quotes their own understanding, the innate knowledge they have that it says in him, we live and move and have our being. In him. And he's talking about that personal relationship. This is not a God who's distant. This is a God who can be known. In fact, it's a God who sent Jesus into the world. Then he says, how can you be ready? I like this word. I kind of, when I read it at the start of the text, I slowed down on that. I wanted to like repeat it and just stop and keep saying it over and over again. When he said this, um, he commands all men everywhere to repent. All people everywhere. When you see men in these verses, it doesn't mean the male gender versus the female gender or the male sex versus the female sex. He's talking about all people everywhere to repent. No racism with God either. He's not saying, I command the people in uh, Hebrews to repent. I command the people in America to repent. I command the people uh, in Africa to repent. I command all Asian people to repent. No, all people everywhere. God is not a discriminator of persons. The Bible tells us that people from all races will come to him and exist together in heaven. Likewise, people from all races will reject his command to repent and will exist in hell but not together. The indications in scripture that it's a solitary confinement in outer darkness for eternity. That's the indication of hell from scripture. And how did Paul assure the people that Jesus is who he said he was? He said it's because of the resurrection from the dead. What was the result of what Paul said? It's a result that people give us all the time. Some mocked him. Some mocked him. You fool. We're smarter than that. People don't rise from the dead. Maybe that's what Paul had in his mind when he wrote Corinthians, talking and Colossians, talking about worldly wisdom versus the wisdom that's from above that's spiritual under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote that. Some mocked, some wanted to hear him out again, some joined him. Two specific names, a man and a woman, were singled out. A man named Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. Application and conclusion to our lives as we wrap this up. We think about this and consider it. God alone is worthy of your praise and allegiance. The first thing I would do... uh, 
if I was hearing this for the first time or being reminded of it again, I'd say, ooh, God, is there a place where maybe I've kind of let some other entity or idea or thought or situation sneak in and become that idol that I'm counting on instead of you? I'd say, God, just show me if there's something that I'm trusting in other than, than, than you. Be reminded that God alone is worthy of your praise and allegiance. Specifically, I brought these passages in about God's people worshiping idols because that's a reminder to us as a church how easily we can fall away. In a culture with so many false idols, even God's church can fall away. It's doing it even now. We get bored with the gospel sometimes, so we latch on to whatever's uh, going on in the world and, and try and be... Uh, cool kids there too. Be careful. Go back to that person, that paragraph I read at the beginning that said quite a contrast between a dying, decaying culture that was once great but is wasting away and contrasting that with Paul. Paul had been impressive on the outside but was dying on the inside until God transformed him. Culture can be impressive on the outside but it's dying on the inside. I used to sing a song when I was a little kid in the Baptist churches in Iowa. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. Inside and outside, on which side are you? One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? We have hand motions and things about that. Uh, There's a way to be right with God. You plug in your GPS, and you say, okay, I got five routes. (laughs) My buddy Tim coming from Holland, Michigan. He's, if he's got a GPS, he can take the route with no tolls. He can take the quickest route. He can take the interstate route. He can take whatever route. He can say, I don't want to go through this. I can go through that. Uh, it's not that way with heaven and rightness with God. You don't have options. You have one road, one path. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Definite, definite, definite articles. No one comes to the Father but me. And Paul said to us, as he said to those Athenians. You've got a lot of options. There's a lot of things you can worship. There's one true God. Worship that God and see the others for what they are. See the others for what they are. Command to repent. Hey, we don't like talking about that stuff. No, we do because it's in the Bible. We've got to talk about that. Repent. Acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Theologically, they talked about the twin sisters. They call them twin sisters. Faith and repentance. Uh, two sides of the same coin. Somebody gives you a, a silver dollar, but it's got the same thing on one side and the same on the other. That's like a fake. And so it's, it's got repentance and repentance on both of it, and there's no faith on there. That's not good. If it's got faith and faith but no repentance, that's, that's a fake too. Faith and repentance come together, and God gives you those gifts of faith and repentance. When you repent of your sins, you place your faith not in yourself anymore, but in Jesus Christ. And Paul was giving them the call to repent. That's where he was getting before they interrupted and mocked him. But the command to repent. Forsake your idols, worship the true and living God, and give up the exhausting pursuit of trivial little human gods. We can enjoy so much in this world. We can enjoy music that pagans write. We can, we can watch a play that somebody wrote, and we can laugh at the 
points where we're supposed to laugh at, and we can probably even laugh at other points. We can enjoy. I'm not saying that that's what we're that, that, that that's it. But see this world for what it is. It's passing away. God, your walk with God, your destination to heaven. Focus on that. See the idols for what they are. I said this before, and, and, and we'll say it again. What a lot of pressure on a couple who's married, and either the wife or the husband looks at their partner to be their God. Think of the pressure. You have to be the one to solve the problems. You have to be the one to fix it. You have to be the one to do everything right. You have to be the emotional. You have to be everything. Man, who can be a God? Don't do that to each other and don't accept that role or try and step into God's place in that role. Encourage your husband to look to God and not you. Encourage your wife to look to God and not you. Anything other than looking to God for our ultimate salvation and even for our personal fulfillment in this life and what we're made for is idolatry, according to the scriptures. And so we watch out for the idols and we come back. That's why we come back week after week to church to sing about it, to think about it, to look at scripture, to consider it, to to meet with other people uh, who are on this continuum. That's why we come to the table every week, which is where we're going right now. Let's pray and let's thank God that he has shown us who he is, and has removed our idols. Lord, thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your table. Thank you that that we get to see the true God. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your splendor. And we thank you for going to such great lengths to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.